Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Undying Light. As always, I am your host, Alex, and I am bringing the next part in the Eschatology series back at you. So last week we started back in the New Testament, and we started looking at the Olivet Discourse, which uh, takes place over the course of the 24th and 25th chapter in Matthew, and as well runs parallel to Luke 21 and Mark 13. So we're looking at this mainly from the scope of Matthew while kind of putting in these pieces of uh, what Luke and Mark write about as well. And so last week we went through the first nine verses in the 24th chapter. We unpacked some of this of what Jesus was talking about, uh, as well as we kind of walked ourselves through um, this book that R.C. Sproul has written, The Last Days According to Jesus. So it's very good. There's a lot of material in here. Um, Some of it, uh, you know, I'm only just taking little bits and pieces that I find to be relevant, uh, kind of in our in our journey through this particular portion of uh, text, um, but he does cover most of this in, in, in great detail. So I figured as we explore this together, the um, Olivet Discourse is probably the most relevant and often abused portion of um, New Testament gospel text. Uh, people like to take this stuff out of context. They like to use these verses either in a singular form or they'll use the actual phrase. But what they're doing is is they're removing the greater context. And I find it difficult sometimes, um, and I've just kind of, you know, speaking on my own personal experience on this part, that some... Uh, church calendars will actually use some of this text in its liturgy. And they often use it right at the time before the Christmas season kicks on. And and even still, in the beginning of the Advent season, they may even draw upon some of this text. And, and I find it difficult because while... As we will explore, and I and I want to try to highlight some of the the section headings in here. Um, while these could be used as separate sermon, they're not. It's difficult because see, this is all part of the greater context. This all goes back to the beginning of twenty four, and it all goes back to the point where the disciples ask Jesus about this temple, you know, they're gloating about the size of the temple. And then 
Jesus makes this prophecy that the stones will be thrown down and one will not be upon another. And then they are curious and they start asking, well, when will this happen? And so Jesus goes into uh, the section between verses 3 and 14 that's in the ESV Bibles titled Signs at the End of the Age. So Jesus is giving them all of these indicators of what they can expect to take place. So context is very key. And, and I find it to be sometimes frustrating if from a preacher's perspective, uh, when I may be going through, you know, the life of Jesus, and then all of a sudden it skips a bunch of time. And then I have to preach on this, on a piece of text. And I had to do this last year towards the end of last year. And, um, I got dumped right into the middle of chapter 24 and I had to preach on a section and um, I believe it was verses 29 to like uh, 35. I'm just looking at that off the top of my head. Um, obviously the liturgy does not cover earlier in chapter 24. So it really misses the bigger piece of the, of the cake here. It misses that context and that's frustrating because the people in the pews aren't getting the full, you know, the full picture. And, and then that also leaves, um, that leaves, uh, this big gap for preachers to come in and then misinterpret the text because they may only get the piece of the text and they read and read and read that little scripture. And, and I'm, you know, I can't speak for all preachers, but, uh, I've seen it enough times from published sermons and and videos and things like that that they will just absolutely massacre whatever portion of text they're preaching on and it it is stressful and frustrating from somebody to uh, have to go into this text and rightly divide it and rightly conquer it and conquer is probably a bad word for it because you really can't you can't be, you know, conquer this text. This is deep and the meanings probably are far greater than we can possibly even fathom. But what I'm trying to get as, I guess for me, if I was preaching on this text, I want to be able to walk somebody through the entire journey in chapter 24. And and I did that when I was given this text in November to preach upon. I, um, literally went, oh, I'm sorry, it wasn't the end of 24, it was 25 verses uh, 1 through 12. It was the parable of the ten virgins. And so this, even that piece of text is put right into the middle of this whole discourse. So you're halfway through the sermon, and all of a sudden you've got this, like, you got a parable that sticks in here, and it's one of a couple that Jesus preaches on. And if you were to just preach on that parable without the greater context, it, it kind of makes sense in and of itself. But again, there's a bigger picture to all of this. And so when I preached on it, um, I had to go all the way back to 24 and kind of walk my congregation through that. And interestingly enough, that was the particular text that I preached upon uh, kind of as my in-person interview for the church that I uh, was called to. So I guess I did a decent enough job. But it's difficult because if I had just left that text alone and just preached upon it, I could have gone in a, a number of different directions and come out with a number of different solutions or possibilities of, of a sermon context. And some of them may have been well and right and others um, could have been way off the deep end. And so that's why when we get into, especially into these New Testament texts, um, and we start to listen to single sermons in this that are focused on these pieces of scripture we have to have our discernments really keen we have to be able to listen and understand is this preacher uh doing justice to the servant to the text to the scripture and now if you get into one that's you know and there's been many many published sermons that are very good because they take all of this and they walk you through the congregation through all of this, the verses and give in-depth, you know, analogies and, and descriptions and, 
you know, really try to bring and paint this picture. And those are wonderful. Um, there's a lot of good ones from Ligonier out there that walk through this. Uh, you know, R.C. Sproles is just one of them. Robert Godfrey does another great uh, set as we will get into the book of Revelation. But I, I have to urge at the beginning of all this because this this text is 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 difficult, and to just read it and and move on, you're doing it a disservice. And in even still, my podcast, I'm probably just barely scraping the surface because I could probably do this do this series today, and then come back in ten years and do it again, and my what I pick up from it would be completely different. What I would deliver to you would be something that would just be completely different. Not to say that what I say today is wrong or anything, but my understanding and depth of scripture knowledge will grow as I would hope all of you listening to this in 10 years would experience that as well. So that's kind of my forefront warning to all of this is just that you know, I want to try, like I said, last episode and, and this one, I want to, I don't want to just breeze through this text, but I don't want to, um, spend too much time, unnecessary time here where we don't need to. So I'm trying to be as meticulous, um, as possible and trying to really provide bigger pictures here of some of these things that Jesus is saying, with the right context and the right understanding of what could some of these things possibly be. So before we get into the text, um, today we're going to look at, um, I think we're going to finish up looking at verse 9, and then we're going to move on, um, and then we'll probably spend a bulk of our time 9 through 14, and if we have the time, we might start looking at the next section, which is 15 through 28, um, the abomination of desolation. That's a big chunk of text. Um, there's a lot going on here, and there's a lot of t- throwbacks to the book of Daniel. So this may be week number three, um, but if depending on our time allotted today, might start looking at that. Um, so just as a couple quick reminders, this show is listener supported. So if you do listen and you want to know how to get involved in um, supporting this ministry, you can DM me on Instagram. I am reformed underscore lifestyle. And, uh, or you can hit me up on the Undying Light Ministries Instagram page as well. And for as low as a dollar a month can help sponsor this ministry and keep us going and uh, keep the content being published. Uh, I am looking at doing more things as, as kind of my life and ministry starts to um, become more routine. And uh, as things like that start to kind of fall into place, I'm going to start doing some video content, you know, once a week or once every other week or so. Uh, looking at uh, doing some more written work for the website and getting things like that up and going. Uh, most of that content will probably be published to the Patreons long before it goes to the website. But uh, within that, like I said, a dollar a month gets you access to all the behind-the-scenes work that we do. So please prayerfully consider. Um, that way we can keep this uh, engine moving forward. Uh, as a side note, you know, a lot of people have been talking about it. Uh, a lot of people have done, I did a short Instagram live the other day on it. Um, and I know a lot of big pages have made announcements and things. As far as I'm concerned, Undying Light will continue to push out content. I know that Twitter today has removed something like 70,000 accounts that are all, according to them, alt-right type pages you know the president of the united states has been removed from twitter Um, a few senators have been removed from facebook Um, trump i think has been actually banned from all social media pages and platforms Uh, amazon web services have removed parlor which is a app social media app Uh, gab has been banned from the apple store and google play so there's a lot of tension in the world right now in in regards to social media and speech. And uh, as always, Christians are thinking that they're going to get targeted. 
Uh, right now, it seems like everything's focused solely on those who are conservative or right wing. And uh, which is funny enough because Twitter will leave up hate speech from world leaders talking about death to America. That's totally fine. <laughs> I mean, do you just not see the irony in all this? It's just, it's stupid to me. Anyways, I, I don't care if whatever political side you fall, but the way Twitter's handled themselves in the last few years, they leave pornography uh, running rampant on their site, but they get rid of the president of the United States. Uh, Amazon Web Services take down Parler, a social media app, but leave up child pornography. I mean, do you not see what the priorities of our world is? Anyways, that's another rant for another time. But being a, a supporter of this ministry would help me stay on the air and continue to produce content. And even if like Undy Undying Lights, you know, social media pages get shut down, Reform Lifestyle gets shut down, all that happens as f until we get turned off the website. Uh, we'll have the website. Um, we are looking at uh, some backup plans just in case. So that way you can um, stay on top and stay alerted to episodes and I pray that we can continue to produce content for many, many, many years. That is my goal. I love doing this kind of work. Uh, I find that, you know, anything ministry-wise is, is kind of that great release, you know, mental release that I can just come and sit down and just talk about things that are religion and things that are God. So just, uh, you know, keep your mind, you know, tuned to the things that the world is doing and, you know, what's keep pushing forward with the gospel messages. I hope that uh, we will have that ability to do so for many years. Now, again, just be cognizant of what could potentially happen. And if it does, it'll probably come quick without a little alerts. Um, so, you know, if you do see me get knocked off, uh, Undying Light Ministries will be my backup page. If that fails, I have a third page, but I'm not really talking about it yet. Um, it's very, very minuscule, and it was basically a joke to start with. But I have something there to at least talk about things. And if my website, if my web server goes down, then we might look at doing something off-key and uh, build our own site and then do an RSS feed to deliver the podcast. But those are things that we're just trying to kind of pan out. So I've been talking long enough. I want to get into the text. But I do, I do have to make that announcement, like I said, because... Things are so uncertain right now, and I want to make sure that those who listen and those who actually care about this ministry stay on top and stay in connection. So feel free to DM me and uh, connect with me. Get my email. It's on social media, and stay in the loop with things that are coming. Um, that way, when or if anything does happen, you are alerted to it. So with that said, let's get to the text. Says so I drink some water here. So the signs of the end of the age, that's what we covered last week. And we spent a bulk of our time looking at the beginning of 24, and we worked our way through eight verses, and we started looking at verse 9. And uh, I want to kind of revisit this. Um, I'm going to read through 3 through 14 really quick because, again, context matters. And if you pick this episode up without listening to last week's, you'll kind of understand a little bit where we're at. So as we go, verse three says, and uh, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, uh, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus said to them, see that no one leads you astray for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars to see to it that you are not alarmed for this must take place. But the end is not yet for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquake earthquakes in various places. But all of these are just the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And they, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another and many false prophets will rise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved, and his gospel, and this 
gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So let's put this section of text kind of into a bigger picture. This is the signs of the end of the age. This is what Jesus is saying. These are the things that will happen. As we talked about last week, we will have many false prophets that will come in his name saying that they are the Christ. And we talked a little bit about that. We will hear of wars and rumors of wars. And we are not to be alarmed because these things will take place, but the end is not yet. Then nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in all various places. And all of these are just but the beginning. And I was thinking about this, uh, verses 7, well, actually you can go back to 6 through 8 here, and uh, the, the talking about wars and nations against nations, I, I really don't think there's been a time in our world history that there hasn't been some sort of war or skirmish or battle or rumors of war or anything like that going on. Since the fall of man, sin has been running rampant and death and destruction follows. And those who seek power will quickly go after that power. They will go after their, their seat of power and whatever means it takes to get there. And so all of these things are just but the beginning. Now, interestingly enough, we're not given a timetable. And here's the thing that can be frustrating to people who are trying to discern the end of times. Because what we will get into in the next section talks about Daniel, and we will make a call back to that text um, and, and go into it a little bit more. But there's often a lot of people that will read this and start to put together, you know, this picture and, and you know, I'm probably going to pick on this particular group a little bit more than others, but dispensationalist, uh, the dispensational premillennialist, often fall into this category more than not. And not to say that anybody or all who fall into this category are guilty of it, but the problem that I've noticed when I'm studying this context is these individuals will start to create timelines. And they will say, well, this is the 70th week of Daniel. Weeks, you know, 1 through 69 happened in this particular time frame. And then the 70th week is going to happen here. And then there's, you know, and then they start to add and, and make all of this stuff up. And, you know, and then they'll say, well, and, and this is right where you're at in history. Or <laughs> this is, you know, right where you're at in the timeline of the end of the world. And I, I you see Facebook pages, uh, Instagram posts all the time that talk about, you know, this is where you're at and the end is coming and, oh, um, or, or the, the great thing is, is, uh, you know, they're, they're building a new temple in, in Jerusalem. That's the third temple. That means, you know, um, there's been a red calf born and the, you know, people, the Pharisees there, the Jewish Pharisees are being trained up in how to do temple, uh, worship again and s temple sacrifice. And they've got the, they're, you know, making the garments for the temple again and, you know, and, and it's coming, it's coming quick. <clears throat> and I hear a lot of this all the time. This isn't just something that kind of comes up and then goes away. This is something that's pretty constant. And it's been pretty constant for a long time in the Christian circles. And I think anybody from the outside looking at it would probably think we're a bunch of crazies because we're constantly chasing these signs. And <clears throat> I just don't, I don't, I don't see where any of that takes place in scripture. Now, I mean, we talked about Daniel at that time frame, and we'll talk a little bit more about probably next week, but I'm reading this text from Christ. And these are the very words of Jesus. And he's saying that all of these things must take place. We will experience wars and, and, and nations against nations. I mean, all these skirmishes, right? We will experience famines in the world. We will experience earthquakes in various places. And these are all but the beginning. And so he doesn't say that they will continue on for 
so many days and then, or weeks or months or years, and then this will happen. He doesn't ever give us a time frame. He just tells us these events. These are signs. These are simply things that will happen as the world continues to crumble. As the world continues to fall into sin, these things will happen. And it's very interesting here. As I mentioned last week in verses 5 through 8, uh, the only thing that's really out of, the con- out of control of man is the earthquakes. Now, I, I kind of hung a little bit on the famine side because famines can partially be controlled um, by man. Often it can be weather related, right? It's too high or too hot, so the uh, crops may dry out and die, or it's too wet and they may just not even grow. Uh, you know, this, the areas could be flooded. Um, famines can come from many different forms, but it can, there is some factor of man that can have a, a impact on it by overpopulating certain areas, uh, or you know, overcultivating certain areas, things like that. So. I kind of gave that a 50-50, right? But, you know, the the wars, rumors of wars, these false Christs, these nations against nations, a kingdom against kingdoms, that's all man created. And it seems to be all at a kind of a broad scale. But then Jesus turns here in verse 9 and he says, and then they will deliver you up. And really, if we look at this particular text... It doesn't say who. It just says they. And in a broad scope, it can just simply be that men whom Jesus declared would deliver the disciples over to the courts for punishment. This could be anybody. It could be men, women, children, neighbors, friends, family. Just they. And they will put you up to tribulation and put you to death. And now, mind you, this is focused on speaking to the disciples, right? He is not talking to um, a broad crowd. He's not talking to, you know, thousands of people. This text is mainly focused on the disciples, the 12. And as we read in uh, earlier last week, um, Luke, I believe it was, I'm going to bring back my text here. I'm sorry, Mark, uh, tells us that the disciples that kind of go after this question and deeper is uh, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. They ask him privately. So Jesus can be talking to strictly these four in this text, or he can be talking to the four, but in greater context, meaning his all 12 of the disciples. But this also has a big, can have a bigger scope. We don't want to take away the original context to it, but we also have to understand what these following words that Jesus says, and you will be hated the 12 by all nations for my name's sake. So he is pointing to the twelve, saying they will deliver you the the um, city councils or the you know the people who manage cities or towns uh, will will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And Jesus also makes reference elsewhere in the Gospels uh, that we are to be hated and despised by the world because the world has hated him first. The world naturally rejects Jesus. The world naturally rejects God. And if you have followed with me long enough on my reformed underscore lifestyle page, I should just say reformed lifestyle. If you followed long enough on that page, you'll remember earlier in the summer, I did a study through Romans and Romans one is very clear that all people around the world have an understanding of who God is and yet reject God. And so I would urge you, there's a story highlight on my page. Go check that out. I wrote some deep commentaries on that. Um, but think about it, though. 
This text, this verse is pointing strictly to the 12. Because every single one of them it were, was put to death. And, and even John was put through tribulation, even though he was cast out to the island of Patmos and um, covered in, you know, he's covered in burning oil and, you know, was left for dead and then pinned the book of Revelation. They were all left for dead. They were all either beheaded, speared, crucified, stoned, whatever means of terrible death, they were all put through it. They were hated by all the nations. And they still are today. Because I believe it right now, around the world, the Bible is banned in 52 countries. It is the most banned book in the world. And would it shock you if someday here, even in the United States, the Bible is banned? Because it wouldn't shock me as rapidly as things are falling apart. It would not shock me one bit. So these 12 are hated by the world. They are still hated by the world. But interestingly enough, this verse has a bigger piece of context or impact for those who follow Christ. Because not just were the 12 put to death, but many in the early church and through the church age have been put to death for simply being Christian. In fact, it still happens today. Go to China and proclaim yourself to be a Christian. You'll be put in jail. And for those who live there, they're turned over to the authorities by <clears throat> family members and friends. And they're put to death. Or arrested and tortured. They're hated. Because they're simply Christians. Is there any other religion out there that experiences this much this much persecution? I don't think so. In fact, every report I've read continues to put Christianity as the number one most persecuted religion around the world. Now, elsewhere in the world, people are being um, you know, put to death or being turned over for their loyalty to Christ. Here in the States, we don't experience that. You know, people claim that, oh, I got shadow banned or my page got turned off for 24 hours. I'm being persecuted. No, you're not. Be lucky and be joyful that you're not being persecuted. Persecution means they are going to strap you down to a table and pull you apart limb by limb simply because you're a Christian. I have watched movies that will just make your skin crawl because of the things they've done to Christians. If you want to dig into that world, go watch a movie. It's called Torture for Christ. Go watch Silence. Go watch Insanity of God. And you'll see what people go through to get the gospel into the world. People here in the United States have become fat on false gospel and lazy in their commission to spread the gospel. That's just the truth. The United States, we're fat and lazy, figuratively, and, well, you know, in reality, because we're quite an obese nation. And I don't care if I'm offending you. I don't hold my punches anymore. But we've become lazy in our commission to spread the gospel. Because the question I can pose to you is, could people determine whether or not you are a real Christian? Is there enough evidence in your life to convict you that you're a Christian? If you were to be put on trial in front of the world stage, could they have, would they have enough evidence to convict you of being a Christian? Because following right here, in verse 10, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Well, that's what we've been talking about, hasn't it? Many who claim to be Christian fall away. Were they really truly Christian? No. They played the part well. They, you know, subscribed to the country club aspect. But the second persecution comes, the second they experience hardship, they turn. Not just here in the States, 
mainly elsewhere right now because that's where these people are turning one another over. You know, North Korea, China, a lot of these communist countries, this is where it's 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 almost a death sentence to be a Christian. When Russia was a communist state, it was a death sentence to be a Christian. And you would get turned over by coworkers, friends, family members for eh, maybe a few coins. Whatever they needed to get through the next few days in their life. Because <laughs> most of the people were not very wealthy. They barely had enough to make it through. And and we sit here in the States and complain about being, you know, oh, I can't post for 24 hours. Get over yourself. I mean, I make fun of it sometimes. I think it's ridiculous, but I'm not. I could never put myself into the line that unless my body is being tortured, would I ever say I experienced persecution? You know, I see these talking heads on social media talking about how they're being silenced and their freedom of speech being stripped away and, and, and all that. Then, you know what? Go protest. They can take you off the internet. That's not removing your freedom of speech. Go protest. That's what freedom of speech is. Being able to gather peacefully and protest. If you want your message to get out bad enough, then go stand on a street corner with 25 of your buddies with signs and protest peacefully. Sorry, I'm on a rant. <laughs> I don't care. It's just, it's just childish anymore. The things we complain about in this world, especially in this country, the things we complain about. Moving on, verse 11. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Let's let's snap verse 13 out right now. Let's We'll come to that here in a few minutes. Let's look at 11 and 12. So in the greater context of things here, what we have is the disciples being spoken to in the greater context, all Christians going forward will be potentially turned over, delivered to tribulations and put to death. We will be hated by all nations for the name of Christ. And because of this persecution, many will just fall away. And Interestingly enough, I highly recommend it's a long movie, but go watch it. It's called Silence. It's got um, uh, Liam Neeson in it and uh, Andrew Garfield, and it's about Catholic monks. It's you know not a you know doesn't have Catholic Catholic doctrine in it, but it's a great movie about Catholic missionaries going overseas into a hostile region, and they experience persecution heavily. Experience it. So go watch it. It's a good movie. It will it will really make you think about what you're doing with your, with your, uh, you know, gospel mission work. So as, as we experience persecution, many will fall away. We will be betrayed and we will betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Ah, does it sound like what's going on today? I mean, there's literally a page on Instagram called the daily, uh, the prophetic daily. Are you serious? You're speaking to God daily, daily. That means God is coming to you 365 times a year and telling you a new word every day. I call that lies. There's other words I'd like to say, but... Not allowed to. <clears throat> Daily prophetic word. You've got to be kidding me. Many false prophets will arise and lead people astray. Turn on TBN. There's not a true word of God on that channel. Many. And sadly enough, many people are led astray. And, and trying to witness to them is the hardest thing. MacArthur says it best. The hardest group of people to witness to are those who think they're Christians because they think they have the right answer, but they don't. They think they know the right manner 
and the right way and the right things to say and do and the right way to behave and all that, but they don't. They don't know the true Christ. And so as the world continues to spin, as as we continue to approach the end of the age, these will become more frequent. It's all a line of progression here. Many false prophets will arise. Many will be led astray. And interestingly enough, this next verse, and because lawlessness is increased, the love of many will grow cold. And I find it funny, um, the lawlessness. Here in the States, we think that we live in a free country. But yet, I need a license and approval from the state to go fishing on a small pond. And if I don't have a license to fish on that small pond, I could get a fine. I need a license to own a firearm. I need a thorough background check to do so. If I want to purchase ammunition for said firearm, I need to have two forms of ID. One of them being that license that I have for that firearm. I need a license to drive a car. I need a license to do this, a license to do that. It just, it goes on and on and on, right? So we've created this society that has restricted so many things. And we think by putting pads in place that we will have created a society where the law is being obeyed virtually all the time because we have all these rules and restrictions. Well, I think, interestingly enough, the more laws that are given, the greater the rebellion of the people will be. When you tell a group of people that they can't do nine out of 10 things that they want to do, they're going to try to do at least a few of those things. Try telling a toddler not to do something. They're going to go do it. Just the nature of of people. And so I think that as we kind of grow in this world, the lawlessness here becomes quite evident. And even still, for instance, um, as we, as we constrain laws for in, in, here in the United States on gun control, they loosen them on abortion. It's not the law-abiding citizens that are committing the murders with firearms. It's the criminals who could care less what law is there. It's not the you know criminal obeying the law. It's the law-abiding citizen. And so they they tighten the reins down here on this aspect, but then they turn around and say, well, we can allow abortion to, to go up to the time of birth, and that's okay. And so, yeah, I think there are aspects where lawlessness is being increased. And, 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 it, and it really reflects this next few words here. The love of many will grow cold. Watch the nation celebrate abortion. Watch women flood the streets with this notion that they can now kill their unborn child. Now, my daughter's two and a half. And I can still think back to the 10 months that my wife was pregnant. I was so cautious and so careful with my wife that I'm like, I did not want to, like, I didn't want to bump her hard enough or, you know, come around the corner and hit her hard enough. Or, you know, I was so cognizant, like even when we drove, like I didn't want to hit the brakes hard enough. You know, I, I just, because my fear of that child and I know the women's bodies built to protect that baby, but you know, it's just, you know, for, for those who have a moralistic understanding of, of God and our, and our sovereign and his sovereignty and our sinful nature, it frightened me to death that I, that all these things in the world could potentially bring harm to my wife and my unborn daughter. And yet we have women and men flooding the streets, celebrating and parading death. So the love of many grows cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Kind of a bit of a snippet here. If you were to look at this verse out of place, but we tie it back into verse nine and carry it forward. 
the 12 will be put up to tribulation and put to death. You will be hated for all, uh, by all the nations for my name's sake. And the love of many will fall, fall away and betray one another and hate one another. So here's where we get into this, where verse 13 has an impact. Of all of the people who are put to tribulation and death, those who endure until the end will be saved. Because it's easy to escape persecution. You just have to concede. You just have to give up. Renounce your faith. Walk away from it. It was not worth it, was it? That's the easy way to get out of it. But Jesus makes it very, very clear right here that those who endure until the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, I want to read this little snippet as we close down this episode, uh, as I've been just ranting through these few verses here. Um, I want to read the snippet from R.C.'s book uh, on a witness to all nations. But, you know, I I really want to make sure we understand that this context of verses 9 through 14 fall into place with signs of the end of the age. These things will continue to happen. They have happened throughout the church history, and they will continue to happen. And as we see, right, it feels like there's always a little bit of progression, wars and rumors of wars, and then, you know, nations against nations and kingdom against kingdoms, and then all of these these, these climactic parts of the world, earthquakes and famines, and then we get to this notion of the individual with the speaking to the 12 that they will be put to death and then they will be hated and then we will experience the same things they did and many will fall away under persecution. And then because of that, it's an easy way for false prophets to come in and lead many more astray. And then as the world continues to fall away, lawlessness is increased and the love of many grows cold. But this promise that Jesus says, the one who endures until the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Matthew then reports more on this discourse here, as I just read verse 14. Jesus cites another phenomenon that must take place before the end comes. The gospel will be preached in all of the world. This sign is widely regarded today as being unfulfilled, as there remains many remote tribes and people who have not yet heard the gospel. Right? So we've talked about all of these verses up till 14. All of these things are happening. Russell argues, however, that this precursor to the end has already accomplished in the apostolic age. One other sign was to proceed and usher in the consummation. Right? It's Russell. The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the world. And there's a Greek word here that I cannot pronounce. Uh, for the witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. We have already adverted or alluded to the fulfillment of this prediction with the apostolic age. We have the authority of St. Paul for such a universal diffusion of the gospel in his days as to verify the saying of our Lord in Colossians 1, chapter 1, verse 6 and 23. But for this explicit testimony from an apostle, it would have been impossible to persuade some expositors that our Lord's words had been in any other sense fulfilled previous to the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, Colossians 1, 6 reads, which has yet to come, as indeed the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it does among many, as it does among many of you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. And then verse 23 reads, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard which has been proclaimed in all of creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, become a minister. Russell will tie and link these verses from Colossians to Jesus' earlier prediction. He writes, Here it may be proper to call to mind the note of time given on a previous occasion to the disciples and as indicative of our Lord's coming, Verily I say unto you, ye shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man comes, Matthew ten twenty three. Comparing this 
declaration with the prediction before us, Matthew 24, 14, we see that the perfect consistency of the two statements and also the uh, terminus ad quam in both. In one case, it is the evangelism of the land of Israel. In the other, it is the evangelism of the Roman Empire that is referred to as a precursor of the uh, parosa. Both statements are true. The wide diffusion of the gospel, both in the land of Israel and throughout Roman Empire, is sufficient to justify the prediction of our Lord. Though Russell links this coming of the Son of Man with the parosha, other scholars such as Albright and Mann see it as being fulfilled with the resurrection of Christ, divorcing it from the second coming of Jesus. So this is one view, right? Verse 14 here that Russell is claiming has been fulfilled because it's not focused to the whole world. It's not in referencing to the context of literally the entire globe. And as you know, he wrote in his RC kind of writes a little bit there um, that there are many unfulfilled tribes and, and, people groups that have not been reached yet. Russell thinks that this, it wasn't the focus of Christ here. Russell's writing that the focus of Christ is the uh, nation of Israel and then the Roman empire. And, you know, in, in retrospect, if we were to look at the context of the Jewish people, this was what they had in, in their minds more than likely as well, because Jesus had, has said a few times that he came first to the house of Israel, then to the Gentiles. And Paul's ministry was mainly throughout the Roman Empire. Um, but we also know that they, you know, the linear thinking that the world wasn't as big as it, you know, was soon to be discovered another, you know, 13, 1400 years later. So their, their understanding of the world may have been much smaller. And that's what Russell's arguing. Um, because the context of the word world in this does mean the geographical world, all things in the world. So it could go to either way, you know, whatever, you know, uh, team you find yourself in, in the understanding of this, some may think that Jesus is referring to all peoples and all groups around the nations. Uh, those must be reached before the fulfillment of this prophecy takes place. That's one major group. And I, I would probably say I find myself more in, in line with that, with that view, because it, we do say the gospel has to be proclaimed around the world. That has been kind of a common thought in the evangelistic circles. Um, mo more people will cling to this, that this is the, the last great uh, milestone, if you would, in events that must take place before the end will come. And it really kind of is because this is the last verse in this section. Because next week we're going to talk about the abomination of desolation. And so if we take all of these signs, this is the last milestone, the last great sign that must take place that the gospel is proclaimed throughout the whole world. Now, you can say in today's day and age, we're already really at that point, right? Every corner of the globe is covered with Christians. We proclaim the gospel everywhere we go, street corners, on TV, in church pulpits, at nursing homes, at our schools, on the internet, podcasts, songs, music, movies, all this stuff, right? The gospel is literally going everywhere. But could we say that the last bit of fringe for this to be fulfilled is these small people groups, it's possible. And I will let that kind of be your uh, decision to make in regards to uh, understanding where you align with that understanding piece. Um, I don't know if I agree with all of Russell and all of what he writes. Um, I kind of want to maybe find a little bit here on who he is more or less because I'm trying to look at this and, and, and I've read through a bulk of this book already in preparation to, um, 
of, uh, of things here, but here we go right off the bat. I want to read through this as we, as I add a little bit more spice to the end of the show, Russell's rejection of Christ. And so this also gives us a bigger understanding too. He says, RC writes, Russell's little book, why I am not a Christian set forth his, uh, Polemic against religion in general and Christianity in particular. He was not convinced that religion has a has had an evil influence on human civilization. The question of the truth of religion is one thing, but the question of its usefulness is another. He writes, "I am firmly convinced that religions do harm, as I am, that they are untrue." So he's I am as firmly convinced that religions do harm as I am that they are untrue. So he believes they are destructive and not true. But Russell hedges his bets a little by declaring his general respects for the moral character of Jesus. He does raise objections to Jesus's recorded behavior at certain points. I stress the point of recorded behavior because Russell was skeptical regarding the biblical account of the life and teaching of Christ. Historically, it is quite doubtful, he says, whether Christ ever existed at all. And if we did not know anything about him, so that I am not concerned with the historical question, which is a very difficult one. Russell continues, I am concerned with Christ as he can, as he appears in the Gospels, taking the Gospel narrative as it stands, where, and there one does f- some things that do not seem to be very wise. For one thing, he certainly taught that his second coming would occur in the clouds of glory before the death of all people who were living at that time. So uh, there's this whole section that uh, R.C. Sproul kind of gives on, uh, on this Russell character here. And, and and the reason I read that, right, is because I want to provide a deeper understanding to who he is and potentially why R.C. used him as a means to, um, as a means to fully dig into this. And so, you know, RC's use is, is his own reasoning. I can't provide a, a context to it, but again, this book really helps us understand, um, who this James Stuart Russell is, um, and I'm going to kind of go over his timeline here too, as I close out the show, I'm just kind of babbling now. I'm just looking at these notes that I have on my screen, but this book really helps us give a bigger understanding to, you know, some of the things that RC has encountered in his time and studying and those who, you know, and, and RC wasn't one to shy away from those who would object to his position. He would take them on squarely. And so that's often why he, you know, RC uses some of their writings because they may have objected to the deity of Christ, but they may have good position on something. They may just not be a Christian, but they may actually understand something and explain it in a way that is easy for us to understand as we believe in Christ. They just flat out rejected him. Um, so I want to read this paragraph and I'm give a life of James Stuart Russell here. The central thesis of Russell and and indeed all preterists, is that the New Testament's timeline references with respects to the second coming point to a fulfillment within the lifetime of at least some of Jesus' disciples. Some hold to a primary fulfillment in AD 70 with a secondary and final fulfillment with a yet unknown time. Whatever else may be said of the preterism, it is achieved in at least two things. One, it has focused attention on all time, uh, on the time frame references in the New Testament eschatology, and two, it has highlighted the significance of Jerusalem's destruction and redemptive history. So, as I said, there are views in New Testament eschatology. Um, last week, I think I talked a little bit about preterism, and that's the kingdom as a present reality that the kingdom of heaven is going on right now. A radical preterism is all future prophecies in the New Testament have already been fulfilled and moderate preterism as many future prophecies in the New Testament have already been fulfilled. Some crucial prophecies have not yet been fulfilled. So that's moderate preterism. So you, you will probably find yourself more in that last category than you would in the first two. 
So James Stewart looks like he was born in 1816, died in 1895. Uh, in 1835, he received a master's degree, became an assistant minister in the Congregational Church at uh, in Great Yarmouth, later became the minister, attending the founding of the Evangelical Alliance in 1843, uh, in 1857, became a minister of the Congregational Church in Tantenham, and in 1862, became a minister in Bayswater. Uh, and then he published a book anonymously in 1878, published a second edition of The Second Coming under his name in 1877, retired from a- in ministry in 1888. So he lived a whole life of ministry work, but then turns around and <clears throat> rejects Christ. So he, you know, RC gives this whole um, explanation of who this gentleman is in his book. So fascinating piece, right? And and that's why I like to use some of these things because it provides a deeper understanding to what we're witnessing and reading through this text. And obviously as a, you know, I'm not a preterist and I don't know if anybody who listens would fall into that category. Some might say they're partial or moderate at most, uh, but, you know, we can't get re- get away from the fact that some of the things that Jesus has prophesied about the end of times has happened, the temple destruction and things like that. So it's, you know, it's always good to, and, and as I said this out this whole series, it's always good to have all of the views in play. And then we can look at them objectively and say, okay, how can we say that this is a true understanding of the end of times? this isn't throw it out. Or is this one maybe a little bit more uh, appropriate that I can believe based upon my hermeneutics, then okay, then we'll hold on to this one. Because as I said, time and time again, the way you read the end of times is all based upon what your current hermeneutic is. If you have bad hermeneutics, then you will have, um, you'll have a bad understanding of the end of times. You'll probably, you know, read it in a very radical fashion. Not, you know, I mean, even, even those who are dispensational have a, a foundation of hermeneutics that isn't radical. Um, but your hermeneutical structure and how you read and understand text is the most important thing. And that just doesn't sit in the scope of eschatology, but it sits in the whole scope of how you read all of scripture. If you were to just go in blindly and, and read something without any sort of context, you're going to do yourself damage. So you need to have a good hermeneutic in how you read uh, scripture. So, and again, you know, go back and listen to those four episodes that I did on the four major views of the end of times, because I hope that they would help you maybe start to build a foundation of, well, this sounds just like more of my style. And so this is how I read scripture. Maybe I view the end of times in this fashion. Um, we, I had a really good interview for the uh, millennialist episode. So go back and listen to that. I thought that was a fantastic episode, but even the other three views that I did spend time on, I thought they all turned out to be rather well. I got a lot of people that enjoyed listening to them. So check them out and let me know your thoughts, because I think that will be helpful going forward in this series. Uh, next week we will cover 15 through 28. Um, now that's a big section. So we'll probably spend one week on that. And then we will spend the next week wrapping out the fourth week in this time. We'll look at 29 through 36, uh, or not 36, 51 here. We'll we'll hit out the last of chapter 24 uh, because I want to make sure that, again, I don't drag my feet, but I provide enough context and meat to all of this for you. So uh, I know this episode was a little bit longer than I normally do. I did have a rant in there. Uh, early on. So I wanted to spend a little bit more time going through the text deliberately. And, and I hope you guys were just get some better understanding of how these verses kind of play out and what they can really mean and look like. So again, context means everything and your hermeneutical understanding means more. Understand what you're reading and understand the context of what you're reading falls into, because that is crucial to understanding all of this. We can't cherry pick these verses and just say, well, this, because Jesus said these words, this is going to happen. Well, yeah, but there's a greater context to all of it. So with that, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to jump out of here and I'm going to go and uh, work on some sermon prep for Sunday. 
If you want to follow my sermon series on prayer, you can follow us on Facebook, uh, Stratford Lutheran Church. Uh, it's actually Stratford Evangelical Lutheran, I believe, is how it's on Facebook. Uh, we're on YouTube as well. If you have any questions, DM me and I'll get you the links to it. And you can follow me uh, as we go through this series on prayer. We're in the Lord's Prayer and the second and third petition for next Sunday. So check that out. I find it to be a absolute most edifying little sermon series. So with that, guys, my voice is getting hoarse and uh, I'm going to go eat some food. I love you all. I thank you for tuning in and uh, we will see what tomorrow brings in the wonderful world that God has created us. Until next Friday, God bless. We'll see you. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.